Well, if I were to ask you if you think that this nation is going in a right direction or in a wrong direction, what would you think? Well, Rasmussen uh, put out a poll on Monday, uh, this past Monday, September 26th, and they asked uh, 2,500 likely voters uh, whether they think that this nation is going in a right direction or a wrong direction, and 72% of them, almost three-quarters of those polled, said that they believe our country is heading in a wrong direction. Now, they never define what wrong direction is all about. It's kind of left open-ended. So I heard some of you grumbling, wrong, wrong. You'd be part of that 72%. But what would you use as a as a measuring rod to say, this is why I feel the country is heading in a wrong direction. I think if Rasmussen called me, <laughs> I would agree with the majority. And the thinking behind what I would be, why I would agree was because I see our country and I think it's heading toward moral decline. I think that, um, I think that What's behind it all is that there is this spiritual vacuum in our country that just seems to be growing, where more and more people lack any interest in, or they lack any fear of, or any reverence for God. Well, we're studying the book of Micah, and Micah was a prophet that was a prophet from God to the nation of Israel, more specifically to the tribe of Judah, which would have been the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom. And he was a prophet around 735 B.C. to around 700 or 701 B.C. And uh, God brought this prophet to the nation in order to bring correction, in order to right wrongs, in order to fight injustice. Today, we are going to see from the wisdom of, of Micah, first of all, what causes a nation to head in the wrong direction. And then we're going to see how that affects the people of that nation, how, how that uh, actually trickles down to every aspect of life. And then finally, we're going to end with, so what do we do about it? as followers of Jesus. And so as we dive in now to Micah chapter 6, verse 9, through Micah chapter 7 and verse 8, we begin with the birth of national corruption. For those of you, by the way, who have been with me, you realize that this pulpit is in the center of the stage. Some of the traditions of the 1960s something I have to get used to, because normally I have it off to the side, so I'm sharing with you what's going on in my mind. I don't know why, I should just keep rolling, Jeremy, they don't really care, just keep talking. But how does an entire nation become corrupt? How can it become broadly unethical, or even crooked, well, the wisdom out of the book of Micah will reveal to us that corruption grows through the super rich. 
those people in a country that are really, really rich have influence, and they actually influence entire countries. If you have your Bibles handy, you can go to Micah chapter 6 with me. Otherwise, you'll see the scriptures up here on the screen. Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, says this. The voice of the Lord will call to the city. Now, by the way, when corruption happens in a nation, it starts in the cities, and then it trickles out into the country. And it it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Sound wisdom to respect God for who he is. I just love Proverbs 9 and verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's good, it's sound to fear the Lord. That's where wisdom is found. And then the Lord goes on, hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? He's saying, listen, who, God is saying, who basically has nations on this planet for any given time? Who starts nations and who ends them? Ultimately, it's in God's hands. And then he addresses where national corruption was born. Verse 10, is there yet a man in the wicked house along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? He's basically saying, I can't justify this wicked deception. Verse 12, for the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies. and Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. This word violence here uh, can take on many different forms. In the context of this passage and in the context of the book of Micah, we realize that this This violence is a form of lying and deception for personal gain. That this violence is demonstrated by the rich getting richer with their fellow fellow rich people, their fellow wealthy people, at the detriment of their other countrymen. In other words, the rich got richer and those who were not rich were kept down. They, They actually didn't benefit from the rich getting richer. Well, does that sound similar to today at all? Uh, Our government, the federal government, every three years puts out a survey called the Survey of Consumer Finances. And it started back in 1983. And they track basically the wealth of our nation and, uh, you know, the middle class where where they're at where the poor are at and where the rich are at and where the richest of the rich are at. So I've got some graphs from this, um, from this survey, the, again, the uh, Survey of Consumer Finances. In 1983, you'll see that um, the middle class, their wealth was about $80,000 a year. In the top 10% of the, of the nation's um, economy or of the nation's population, um, they, were about, they were at about half a million the top 10%, top 5% were almost at a million, and the top 1%, you've heard that in the news, were at about 3 million. That was what they were worth in 1983. Now go to 1989. Uh, Middle class stayed about the same. This stayed about the same, but the very wealthy began to grow. 92, uh, again, middle class staying about the same, uh, rich staying about the same, and the very rich staying about the same. 95, About the same, 98, a little bit of increase there now. You'll see that in the the very rich are now at about 5 million. 
the top 10 and 5%, about the same. Notice this. All of a sudden, the middle class, their wealth was around $100,000. And uh, in 2001, that continued to grow. Go to 2001. 113,000, almost 114,000. The very rich are getting quite wealthy here. And the, the top 10 and 5%, they're staying about the same. 2004, we're up uh, about the same. And 2007, notice the middle class. Their wealth was about $136,000. That was the middle range in, in the United States. And the very wealthy were up around 9 million, 9.4 million. And, uh, and you'll see that the top 10% were now at a million and the top 5%, they actually increased to at about 2 million. Now, there's an interesting thing that happened from 2007 until the next time that they did this survey. Notice what, it, what happened in 2010. Keep your eye on this number. Boom. The middle class dropped like over $50,000 in three years. Uh, the rich stayed about the same and the very rich dropped a little bit. And then in 2013, you'll notice now the, the middle class are about at 81,000. This is kind of an interesting number. The poor are losing money in 2013. They can't even make it to zero. But what I found interesting when I was looking at this is, and this is the latest data. We'll get another one after 2016 is over. They'll get the next one out. But you notice the drop in the middle class. These guys stayed about the same, but the drop in the middle class and then it goes to almost the exact same amount as what was 30 years earlier, go back to 1983. And we're seeing that the middle class is really not advanced at all in the last 30 years because basically the bottom fell out sometime between 2007 and 2010. Well, what are the reasons for this? Why did this happen? Well, honestly, I am not an economist. <laughs> So I'm not going to uh, speak with much authority around that, but I am a student of history a bit, and I came across a quote from our fourth president, James Madison, who was one of our founding fathers, and he gave this warning. He said, history records that the money changers have used every form of abuse, intrigue, deceit, and violent means possible to maintain their control over governments by controlling money and its issuance, and the way that the money is issued out there into society. That it's the very rich that control the money, and through that, they control the country and where it's at economically. The super rich, they own and control the media. They own and control the lobbyists. The super rich have influence over politicians, over lawmakers, and if they are corrupt, a nation will become corrupt. Let me just say I'm not trying to be discouraging to all of you. Uh, I like to put a smile on my face, and yet uh, I'm also a realist as I see what's happening around us and I read the scriptures. And the reality is this kind of trend in any society, it kills the positive spirit of a society. It kills the positive spirit of a nation when these things are moving in a wrong direction. And God addressed the corruption in the tribe of Judah way back in the 700s uh, BC and what was happening in their country. Look at verse 13 of Micah chapter uh, 6. It says this, So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. 
Judah would be struck down because of the sin of greed. Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, had a similar warning for us as a nation. Notice this from Abraham Lincoln. I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned. An era of corruption will follow. And the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until the wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic destroyed. Until the wealth of the country is basically in the hands of just a few people, the vast majority of the wealth of a country. And then when that happens, a country will begin to be destroyed. His worry was the United States would end up being destroyed. You know, money buys influence. And money, if you have it, causes you to have a lot of freedom. It gives you a lot of freedom. But money cannot buy peace. It cannot make a nation feel content. Look at verse 14. God goes on, he says, you will eat, but you will not be satisfied. And your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. Your enemies, I will give it to your enemies. Which happened when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in and took over uh, Israel and Judah. Verse 15, you will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. Oil and wine, symbols of satisfaction. But the positive feeling would be gone. And then the Lord identified where this immorality had its origin. It was in the rulers uh, of Israel about 150 years earlier. They ruled with deception and manipulation, and they set up these structures that they established through deception and through manipulation that would ultimately topple. Verse 16, the statutes of Omri. Omri, by the way, was a bad king. Uh, He ruled over Israel, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. He ruled over Israel around 874, 875 B.C. And then it goes on and it says, um, and all the works of the house of Ahab. Ahab was Omri's son, evil king also. Ahab was famous for his wife. His wife's name was Jezebel. She was an evil queen. All the works of the house of Ahab are observed, and in their devices you walk. In their deception, in their manipulations, you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision. Derision, by the way, is, is hatred. It's, it's a mockery because you're so mad at, at, at another. And you will bear the reproach of my people. The immoral structures that had been established for years would topple. You know, the Apostle Paul actually gave us a similar warning in the New Testament. I don't know if you realize this, but jump over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. It says this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So what have we been sowing, by the way, as a country? How have we been doing? Well, it, it, back in Micah, he addressed the, the uh, sin of greed. He addressed the, the sin of, of how the rulers uh, spent and received money, how they got money and spent it. In America, we are spending 
beyond our means. I have a graph here of our national debt. In 1940, we basically had almost no debt. Then World War II happened. It caused us to fall into debt. And we kind of maintained sort of the same debt level until about the 1970s it starts going up. And I remember from my uh, history that I've been alive, in 1991, it made big news that our national debt hit $1 trillion. That was like big time. Like I can't believe we actually have a $1 trillion debt. Well, as you can see, our debt has risen significantly over the years where this last one is 2011 at 15.4 or so uh, trillion dollars. Today, our national debt is over 19.5 trillion. So that's like four lines above. So one, two, three, four. So if you go down to this 11 mark, add that to the top of this line, literally our debt is through the roof, if I may. You know, 19.5 trillion, if you broke that down to every taxpayer in the whole United States, that would be that each of us would incur a debt on ourselves at over $163,000. It's like every single taxpayer would basically have a home mortgage that they'd have to be paying. And not too shabby of a home mortgage also. I wonder, when will our immoral structures topple? We see what we've been sowing. When will we reap? For most of us, when we think of corruption, um, you know, at the top levels of government, when we, when we think of, of what's happening in our nation, a lot of times we think, you know, that's so out there. Just let them worry about it, you know? I mean, what, why should we even care about what's happening at a national level? It doesn't really affect me. Hold on now. Not so fast the trickle-down effects of corruption. Let me talk about the trickle-down effects of corruption. According to Micah, I see how the corruption at the top impacts us at our level in three different ways. First of all, what happens is the godly dwindle. Those who stand up for the Lord, those who stand up for that which is right, those who stand up for... for um, for God and his ways, they become marginalized in a society like that, and their numbers actually go down in those countries. In Micah chapter 7 and verse 1, it says this, Woe is me, Micah says, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a, ripe, or a first ripe fig which I crave. Now he's speaking in poetic languages here. He's, he's painting pictures. He's painting a metaphor here. And what he's talking about is others who I'm trying to gather together with me, who have a same like mind, who, who think the way I think, who want to honor the Lord, they're hard to find. Matter of fact, he goes on in verse 2 and he says, the godly person has perished from the land. And there's no upright person among men. All of them, all of the ungodly, Lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts, with their, uh, hunts the other with a net. In other words, these people, they're corrupt all around me. I can't find people who want to honor the Lord. It starts at the top, and it trickles down to the rest of the country. Yeah. From 2007 until 2014, the Pew Research Center actually has been tracking 
the growth or the lack thereof of Christianity in America. Here is a chart that I have for you. I'm Mr. Chart Guy today. You'll notice down here 2007 to 2014. So this is the 2007 line. This is a 2014 line, and I know that the trends are the same in these last two years as well. If you start at the bottom, those in America who uh, would say they are non-Christian faiths, that would include Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and other uh, world religions and other faiths, uh, they are on the increase in the United States uh, over, you'll see, uh, plus 1.2%. And then um, mainline Protestants, they have dropped significantly in, the, in those seven years. Catholics have dropped significantly. Here's the biggest gainer in our society today, the unaffiliated. These are people who would maybe you'd be called the nons. You know? they, they don't really identify with any religion whatsoever. They would just say, I, I don't associate with any religion. This is on an extreme increase in our society. And we evangelicals, we, we are... You know, we're Bible teachers, we, we, we feel like we're, you know, contemporary, we're cutting edge, we're hipster, we're all that. I mean, with these pants, come on. <clears throat> We've always kind of prided ourselves, like, okay, I know that the mainline churches are on the decline, I know Catholicism is on the decline, but not us. We're still on the rise. No, actually, even evangelical Protestants are on a decline in our society, and it's still true to this day. The fact of the matter is, when a nation moves toward corruption, the godly dwindle. The second effect is the lawmakers and the enforcers of the law become twisted. The lawmakers and the enforcers of the law become twisted. This is what happened in Judah during uh, the days of Micah. Look at verse 3. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And the great man, that's the rich, the super rich, the, 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 the influencers, uh, they speak the desire of their soul, of his soul, and they weave it together. So the, the rich man influences the politician and the judges, and this is what I want, and they try to weave it so that the rich man gets what he wants, the super rich I'm talking about. And then verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. Uh, uh, the prince, the judge, the great man, they weave together and they twist where what was once immoral now in a society is declared moral. And if you hold to, no, I think that's still immoral, you're looked at as the immoral person to even think that. It's twisted. Then the best, what the, the result is the best Potential rulers, then, that we have to choose from are seen right there at, in the beginning of verse 4. The best of them, then, is like a briar, and the most upright, like a thorn hedge. Now, I, I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I really am not. However, what Micah said then may be seen as ripped right out of the pages of the news today. Because some think... That the choices that we have for our rulers today are either going to be a briar or a thorn hedge. <laughs> either a weed or another weed. But here's the warning that Micah gives. Verse 4 ends this way. The day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. 
When you are under attack, Judah, he was saying, listen, when you are under attack, when the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in, your rulers won't know how to defend you. They will be confused. They won't know exactly what to do, and they'll make poor choices. And that is exactly what happened. And it could very well happen again today for us. When rulers are corrupt, they will lack wisdom on how to handle it, how to, han- on, uh, how to handle it when the nation that they are called on to lead is under attack. Well, here's another consequence of the corruption on a national level. Trust is lost. It trickles down to the point where trust among one another begins to diminish. Verse 5, do not trust a neighbor, do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. By the way, some think that's a wife. I don't. I actually think that this is speaking uh, to the promiscuity and the adultery that was happening in Micah's day. And then the level of distrust grows from the friends and the neighbors, and it trickles down into, might I even say, invades the family. Notice verse 6. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Gary Campbell, I don't know, some of you know the name Gary Campbell. He, um, he's one of our elders. He actually works voluntarily as our di- uh, director of operations at our church. Great guy. Uh, a little while ago, he was telling me about growing up in the 1950s. Uh, and he said, you know, the picture that you have of the 50s is really what it was like. Like He grew up in, you know, a traditional family with traditional family values. His family structure was very solid, very strong. They went to church on Sunday together. Communities were safe and neighborly, just like you'd picture. Then the 60s came along. And the assassination of John F. Kennedy came along. And the Vietnam War came along. And counterculturalism came along. And Woodstock came along. And these pants came along. <laughs> there was a shift in our country in the 1960s. It was a shift against the traditional family. It was a shift against honoring our parents. It was a shift against biblical values. And I wonder, are we reaping today what we had sown so many years ago? I can kind of feel it in your body language right now. Pastor, don't bring me down. Down, 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 down. That's for next week, 1979, by the way. But a prophet like Micah, he speaks directly to the culture that he's in. A prophet like Micah says some pretty hard things to try and correct wrongs. But a prophet like Micah also gives guidance. A prophet like Micah also has a shepherd's heart to help to lead 
those remnant that want to still follow the Lord. And that's what he does here by example. What do we do as followers of Jesus in the world that we live in? What what do we do? Well, first of all, we pray. We pray in light of eternity. The story's not over until Jesus is reigning. And look at what Micah does in verse 7. He says, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I'll wait expectantly. I, I, I expect to see God working. Now, you need to understand what Micah saw was not that God swooped in and made everything right. No, as a matter of fact, what Micah saw was the Assyrians coming in. And we're not quite sure what happened to Micah after the Assyrians swept in and took over the place. But what Micah did see is that God was working in the midst of the corruption. There was that remnant of people that still wanted to honor God. There was still those people who still, who still wanted to listen to Micah and what he had to say. Yesterday, Jill, my wife, she, um, she actually uh, asked me as we were talking through this, she said, is there a nation that exists today that is not corrupt? And the fact of the matter is, The nation that came closest ever in world history to not being a corrupt nation was the nation of Israel under the leadership of King David. But even if you read that history, you realize even that was corrupt. There has never been a completely righteously led nation. But according to the scriptures, there will be. There is coming a day When the Lord Jesus will come back to this earth and he will sit on his glorious throne right here on the earth and he will reign over this earth and according to Revelation chapter 20, it'll be a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth and he will reign in righteousness and that will carry over then, if you go to Revelation 21 and 22, all the way through the new heavens and the new earth on into eternity. What Micah said here at the end of verse 7 is very important. Look at, look at what he says at the end. My God, okay, all of this, I'm waiting for, for the Lord expectantly. I'm looking for his salvation. But my God will hear me. My God will hear my prayers. My God will hear your prayers, and he will hear my prayers. Until that day when Jesus is, returns or we go to be with him, until that day, pray. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is very clear that our battle is a spiritual battle. And one of the greatest weapons that we have to fight this spiritual battle is when we get on our knees, fight like men and women, and pray. We fight through prayer. Prayer. Pray. Pray for our rulers. Pray for our country. Pray for people who are lost that are all around us. Pray for their salvation. Pray for a movement of the Spirit where he might sweep across this place and bring about a revival. Pray. Pray that God might use you. Pray that God might use me. Pray that God might use us to share his good news with a world that so desperately needs it. In everything, pray. One last thing, hope in God alone 
I think many in our country treat our rulers like they are the ones to hope in. Like they're the ones to make everything right. Like they look to them to save them in some way. Micah saw otherwise. Look at verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is light, is a light for me. Darkness is all around us. I mean, you see it, I see it. But the Lord is our light. You know, right now we're in this political tornado. (laughs) It's crazy. It's like one more month and then the election. To hope in one or the other candidate to rescue us or to make things better for us, to me seems empty. There is only one to hope in. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There's only one to hope in. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the Lord God Almighty, and his name is Jesus. Amen. That's right. He came to this earth over 2,000 years ago. He came as a servant. He came lowly, born in a manger, in a stable. And he grew up for one reason, and that was to die for you and for me. He came to the earth to pay for our sins, for our wrongs, to pay our penalty that we deserve. And after he died for our sins, three days later, he rose from the grave. And he went to heaven so that he could send to us the helper, the Holy Spirit, that would be sent into us when we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us. It's called being born again. And with the Holy Spirit in us, we can, we can have his light in our lives. We can look to the word. We can understand the word. He can teach us. He can guide us. And we can have this hope of eternity. The Holy Spirit in us is our guarantee that we're going to be with Jesus forever and ever. He's the hope of the world. Not some candidate, not some political party, not some nation. Until that day when he returns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, where he will reign in righteousness, until that happens on this earth, he wants to be your and he wants to be my light in the darkness that we live. I'm calling on you and I'm calling on me to turn to him today. Our country may be heading in a wrong direction. But Jesus can lead you and me in the right direction. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He's the one to turn toward. Now, for some of you here, this may be the first time that you've actually heard that. Wait. I can hope in Jesus. Wait, he died for my sins. Wait, he's alive and he wants to lead my life right now. For some of you, that might be new. But I got to tell you, it is good news. If you turn to him in faith and trust that, yes, he died for your sins to make you right with God the Father. And, And then if you just lay your life down at his feet and say, Lord, I surrender to you, he'll lead you. He'll lead you in the light, even though you live in a dark world. For some of you here, no doubt, 
you've been kind of walking away from the Lord Jesus. You've kind of turned your back. You, you used to follow him, but, but today's the day that he's calling you to turn back to him. Because you can't find hope in a political process. You can't find hope in a nation. You can't find hope in anyone but Jesus. And he's calling on you to turn back to him today. For others of you, the rest of you here, turning to Jesus every day is something that should just be our practice. It should just be what we do, that we constantly turn back to him, that we constantly turn toward him, that we just share our lives with him, that we just lay our lives at his feet, that we surrender ourselves to him. All of us here, he's calling on us to turn to him because he will bring us in the right direction.